This is the History Tavern Podcast. The brutal axe murders of Abby and Andrew Borden have captivated generations of historians and true crime fanatics since they took place on August 4, 1892. Here are the facts. On the morning of August 3rd, the day before the murder, Lizzie attempted to purchase prussic acid, a deadly chemical, from a local pharmacy. Lizzie later claimed to have not left the house until much later that evening. On August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, several members of the Borden household complained of being sick. Abby Borden even told her doctor that she believed she had been poisoned. On the evening of August 3rd, Lizzie visits her friend, Alice Russell, and claims that her father had many enemies and fears that someone will try to hurt him. Lizzie said, I feel as if I wanted to sleep with my eyes half open. Around 7 a.m. on the morning of August 4th, Abby, Andrew, and John Morse, Lizzie's uncle and brother of her biological mother, breakfast in the dining room. John Morse had spent the night. Lizzie remains upstairs. Around 8.45, John Morse leaves the house. Around 9 a.m., Andrew leaves the house. Around 9 a.m., Abby goes up to the guest room. Around 9.30, Bridget goes outside to begin washing the windows. Around 10.40, Andrew arrives at the house and has trouble entering the door. Bridget lets him in. Later, Bridget claims she heard Lizzie laugh from the top of the stairs, which places Lizzie near the guest room, where Abby would be found. Around 10.45, Lizzie claims Abby received a note to tend to a sick friend and is not home. Around 10.55, Bridget goes to her room on the third floor to rest. Around 11.10, Lizzie yells to Bridget upstairs, Come down quick! Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. Around 11.23, several people arrive at the Borden house. Lizzie now claims she heard Abby return. Bridget and Borden neighbor Adelaide Churchill go upstairs and discover Abby's body in the guest room. Shelly Dietzstick, a former tour guide at the Borden Bed and Breakfast and creator of the website Lizzie Borden Warps and Wefts, takes us on a deep dive into the case. Our interview began with Shelly talking about her time as a tour guide and her approach to educating people about the case. I worked for the previous owners, the McGinn's, um, and then when Leanne Wilbur and Donald Woods purchased the house in 2004, I worked for them. Um, right. And uh, it, it was always, a you know, I, I like to combine history, and I was an English teacher for a while, and educating with um, some sort of entertainment as well, and when you can dress in the 1892 fashion and sort of bring the story to life for people, they're engaged on a lot of levels, but they're also learning the facts about the case as well. Yeah, I think it's so, really important. As somebody, you know, my initial interest as a kid was in the Civil War, and of course it was a movie, Gettysburg, that got me interested. So, I mean, you got to you grab a hold of somebody first and get them interested, and then they can really dive in. So I think what you do is really important. Um, I've been to the Borden house twice. I've stayed over night twice, both times with my brother, and both times my brother was severely disappointed not to have you as a guide because he said it's just not, the tours just aren't uh, up to snuff without you and the detail that you knew. So um, that's, you know, when I talked about possibly doing a podcast about this, he said, you've got to get Shelly. She knows uh, it in and out. Um, and anybody else well, just isn't, isn't going to do it justice. Interesting. And uh, thank you for that. I, I, I must have done my job, uh, when Bill was with me. 
when the house first opened as a bed and breakfast, Miss Josephine McGinn had passed away. She and her husband, John, had purchased um, the Leary Press, which was a private publishing concern that would publish local broadsides and advertisements. The Leary Press was attached to the Second Street home, literally attached to it. And when the new owners purchased in 2004, they knocked down the Leary Press. But when it first opened, it was very much about the history of the case. And over the years, as I continued working there, um, our audience turned more to paranormal. And right. I, as much as I enjoyed working at the house, and I still go back from time to time to do various TV programs. I have one coming up pretty soon. Um, the clientele... I guess they just turn more toward this paranormal, which is real trendy, very popular. Sure, yeah, yeah. Many, you know, and I've actually done some of them, the Dead Files, Monster Quest, a couple for Travel Channel. I can't even remember. There's been so many. But it wasn't to me as satisfying. I'm, I'm not a big believer in paranormal. Um who knows if there's anything to it or not. Right, right. I know I work there. I worked there for almost 18 years, and occasionally I would hear a few odd sounds. And uh, I've attended many, many seances. I've never seen anything, any apparitions. Right. I've never had any issue with um, paranormal things occurring. I've been in the house alone many times, and, of course, sleeping up in the attic at night. But when people do come and stay, and that is their main interest, I try to load the tour, if I can, at least with some facts. Mm -hmm. um, and the story of the Borden case has been so corrupted by stuff that has come through a Ouija board that it's now being taken as fact. I started Warps and Wefts, oh, back in 2009, to publish both the Facebook page and the, um, the website, Lizzie Borden, Warps and Wefts. The Warps and Wefts is a reference to the textile city. Mm -hmm. And the various threads in the case, the Borden case, do weave a sort of a fabric of the story. And I wanted to play off of the textile history of the city. But what's on there is just a plain old research. It's going to a library looking through old newspapers and microfilm. I'm old school. I'm nearly 70, so when I do research, it's, it's old school. You put the time in. You put the sweat in. You go in with a pencil, you know, and a notebook, mm -hmm. and dig. And well, that's very satisfying to me. <laughs> it's it's a great website. Uh, and as I – and again, I'm, I'm a bit of a um, – I have a moderate amount of knowledge about the case myself. Um, with a brother who's a fanatic about it, um, but yeah, going yes, <laughs> going on your on your website, it's very accessible. And if there's a character that you happen to be interested in that day, there's an article or two articles about that individual. Um, it's a really well put together uh, website, and it certainly helped me sort of prepare. Uh, you know, to talk to you and to learn more about the case. So, um, and you just mentioned, um, it, you know, uh, Fall River and Fall River's history as a, um, a, a, a city that had a lot of textile mills. Um, so can you start and sort of root, root us down in 
what Fall River looked like in 1892. Um, a lot of authors sort of uh, write it was uh, it was a city divided, uh, you know, a city divided by class, by race. So can you just sort of talk generally about Fall River? Oh, certainly. Of course, there are many, many pictures of how the city looked in 1892. It wasn't just Fall River. It was, you know, Lowell and Norwich and you could go right up the coast as far as these textile, they called them spindle cities, that were uh, economy was based on the mills. And anytime you have big factories, you're going to have levels of society from the lowest uh, spinner um, in a mill working, even young children would run between the looms sweeping up threads. And, and then you have the mill workers and the managers and uh, – right on up to the tycoons like Richard Borden, um, the Braytons, the Durfees, all kinds of mill owners. Um, it was sort of like a pyramid with a few giants at the top. And as you go down, all of the support system that kept them at the apex of prosperity, and those were the movers and shakers, those names probably a dozen um, and some of the family members are still there in the city. You only have to walk through Oak Grove Cemetery to see the size of the big mon monuments, and a lot of them will have Borden on them. Lizzie was distantly related to Richard Borden, who was the, the kingpin in Fall River uh, in, in the mills, uh, owning mills, Tycoon and his brother Jefferson. The mill industry actually started in Fall River in a big way in 1811 okay. with the Durfee, Durfee Mill down in the south end of Fall River. Um, and then you had the immigration. You had people coming, uh, Italy, Canada, uh, chi uh, Chinese um, came into the city. I think there were about 13 to 16 major uh, enclaves there of uh, different cultures, large Irish, very large Irish population. And this is where the Borden made Bridget Sullivan comes right, in. Right, right. Um, and, of course, there was the usual discrimination against the Irish um, and Portuguese. I'd say the second probably largest group was the Portuguese um, from the Azores primarily. And then... Uh, probably the third group would be the French Canadian. Right. And you can, as you drive down the streets in Fall River, there's, you know, uh, I don't know what you would call them, the ethnic ghettos of these various um, immigrants that came to this country to work in the mills. There were also a lot of English that came over uh, because Birmingham and Manchester, Blackpool, they were sort of the counterpart to the American mill towns. Mm -hmm. And at one point, um, it was Birmingham, I think, in England, that produced um, so much of the yard goods. And Fall River, at one point, rivaled even that city in the number of spindles. Wow. So Fall River was a heavy hitter in producing cotton, was king there, printed calico cottons. And the entire um, economy of that city 
was based on those mills. And a lot of the mills are still there today. I have made a number of videos on my website uh, where I walk around the city and explain what it is you're looking at that was here in Lizzie's day that would be on my YouTube channel. And also there are links on my Facebook page, the Lizzie Borden Warps and Wefts. I do a video or two, you know, every month. And I'll make sure to include links to that uh, below the podcast when I share it. Um, and, you know, it, one of the authors I was reading, just to go back to what you said, uh, called Fall River the Manchester of America. Um, you know, again, just sort of this, like you said, this giant producer. Um, mm-hmm. So Yes, that's right. And also, Fall River did have a thriving granite industry, uh, very famous for Fall River Red Granite. And they have a, uh, a maritime history, too, with the Fall River Line paddle boats that ran uh, between Fall River and New York. And Lizzie, at one time, uh, would most likely have traveled on one of those. And all of that shut down, I believe, around 1930s. You saw the end to the paddle steamer when the trains were running. Uh, fewer and fewer people were taking paddle boats and Right. Uh, so there's a maritime history, there's a textile background, and then some other smaller industries like, you know, granite, and um, there's some rural, a lot of rural area. There were farms. Andrew Borden, Lizzie's father, actually owned two farms across the Taunton River, uh, which is not too far from Providence. Fall River is only about 20 minutes from Providence. And in Swansea, which is the town you come to before you cross the Braga Bridge, which uh, goes into Fall River. The Bordens had two working farms there. Can you talk about Andrew Borden, uh, this self-made man who uh, seemed to have taken taken advantage of the opportunities that a city <laughs> like Fall River presented? Um, oh, yes. Yes. Andrew Borden gets a bad rap pretty much from a lot of writers that, you know, uh, make him out to be some uh, monster, miserly, uh, terrible to his daughters. Uh, n- none of that is actually right. He was pretty much a type, the thrifty, fr- frugal uh, Yankee, very hardworking, very conscientious, um, not a lot of humor, not warm and fuzzy. <laughs> right. There seems to be proof of some affection with his daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, he was proud, and it was said of him that he never asked to borrow any money, but nor would he ever lend a dollar either. And he was, as many men were at that time, a self-made man. Lizzie's grandfather, when they lived on Ferry Street, which is not too far from where the murder house uh, is on 2nd Street, he was a jack-of-all-trades, as many men had to be in those days. They would do two or three different things to earn a living. Andrew Borden was trained as a carpenter, and the house he ended up living in and where he was killed, uh, he may have even worked on that with his good friend, um, Southern Miller, who lived across the street. And I get the impression Andrew was sort of like an apprentice to Mr. Miller. Mr. Miller was a much older man. and they worked actually on the city hall. But carpenters in those days also could turn a hand to other things, small farming, uh, income from that. Mr. Borden also 
is listed as an undertaker. Uh, when the movie with Elizabeth Montgomery was made, they made a, a big mistake there. Undertaker in 1892 was not a funeral director nor an embalmer. Um, they were usually men in uh, carpenter or furniture trade <clears throat> who could uh, make coffins or supply items that might be needed for a funeral. And that's what Mr. Borden did as a sideline. He went into business right on South Main Street with a longtime family friend uh, named uh, Almy, A-L-M-Y. And uh, Mr. Almy and Mr. Borden actually brought, bought their funeral plot to, together at the same time, and they bought the summer farm, the summer house over in Swansea on Gardner's Neck Road, together. Uh, so they worked very closely together. But Andrew Borden was not um, an undertaker in the sense that you find that today. Right. So that was a big, big mistake in the Borden movie of 1975 with uh, Elizabeth Montgomery. Other than that, that was, in my mind, the best thing that has ever been on film about the Borden story was that 1975 version. They stuck pretty close to the inquest testimony mm -hmm. uh, and actual written documentation. I, uh, When I'm asked by people who want to study the Borden case to recommend reading I always steer people clear of any theory book because um, a lot of them aren't well-researched as far as uh, existing documents. I would recommend the inquest, which mm -hmm. is free online. You just have to type it in through Massachusetts. Uh, U University of Mass Law School has that there. <clears throat> you can buy the preliminary hearing, and there's a three-volume set on the trial, and most importantly, the witness statements that were taken the day of the murder. Right. You want to really learn about the case, you need to read the source documents. Stay away from websites in general. Right, right. And uh, a lot of these theory books are so far out there. Yeah. And some of them are by, I've worked with many authors over the years who are writing books, and I usually take them around the city and um, and then what they write about later, I'm always astonished. You know? <laughs> right. Where did you get that information? It's like right. every author wants to outdo the next one. Right, right. Um, there are a few really, really good books about um, the case, and there's an excellent one by the Fall River Historical Society. They have um, the largest collection of um, memorabilia, I guess you'd call it, uh, source documents, the notes from... Um, one of Lizzie's attorneys, uh, Andrew Jennings, are there. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a good place, too, to go for research. You do have to call to make an appointment. But you really need to get to the core of existing documents and not get so far out on a limb with the paranormal. Sure, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Ouija, The Ouija board yeah, right, said, right. you know, yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, well, there have been a lot of myths that way. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's it's a it's a it's a shame because there's so much stuff that's interesting there already without having to involve crazy theory and you know. Oh, uh, thank you for yeah, saying that, Nick. Yeah, yeah, it is a really juicy story. It is. It you is. don't have to invent incest and Lizzie was uh, lesbian. Right. And, right. Uh, I yeah. mean, I could go on and on. Sure. Some of these. Yeah. Theories have all been fairly recent, I'm saying, since sure. maybe 1950, 60. And it's like every interview 
has to be more titillating than the next, <laughs> and they all try to top each other. None of this stuff ever appeared in the actual case or any time soon after. There was some talk about Lizzie Borden and her relationship with a stage actress named Nancy O'Neill. Mm-hmm. She met Nancy O'Neill in 1904 at a summer resort up in Massachusetts. She was introduced by uh, another uh, actress friend. And Miss O'Neill had a lot of debts, and Lizzie was very generous and very happy to have a friend because, as you know, after uh, Lizzie was acquitted in the court of public opinion back in Fall River, many people didn't want anything to do with her. She thought she uh, had gotten away with something, and, you know, they thought when she returned to her church, she was sort of ostracized in her pew and decided she wasn't going to try to go back to her old lifestyle. But she did have many friends. Mm -hmm. The story that Mm -hmm. she was a lonely recluse is not accurate. she did make many friends and traveled quite a bit. Sure, yeah. After the acquittal, um, she had she a, went to Boston. Mm-hmm. She seemed to New have York. a pretty luxurious lifestyle after the after she was acquitted. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> and even more when her sister Emma left her mm-hmm. in 1905. We're not sure of why. Um, many books say, well, Emma realized that her sister had done the, the heinous crime. I don't think it was that. I think it was uh, quite a few things. Lizzie was living in a way that Emma didn't approve of. She entertained Nancy O'Neill at the home on at least one occasion, and theater people were sort of um, frowned upon uh, in society as being lesser mortals and (laughs) scandalous at that. And Lizzie uh, had some um, champagne and, I think, alcohol. Um, and, of course, the Borden family were strict temperance. Sure. Uh, so you... these these little things. And yeah. There was quite a scandal with Lizzie's chauffeur, too, Joseph Tetro. And that's such a funny little story. I'll throw that in quickly. Sure. Uh, he was a, a handsome fellow and popular with the ladies. And Lizzie had hired him to drive her carriage. Um, Emma didn't like the way he talked to Lizzie. He was just not employee-employer, you know. He was a little, I guess they call in New England, they call it fresh with Lizzie, or not fitting in her mm-hmm. mind. And she fired Mr. Tetro, uh, and Lizzie rehired him. And it, were, it was this sort of little daily skirmishing with Lizzie and Emma uh, once Lizzie had her own money and was out from under the thumb of her father, right? Uh, she wanted to be herself. And Emma, who had always been a very maternal figure mm-hmm. to Lizzie, on Lizzie's natural mother's deathbed, Sarah Morse Borden, uh, who died when Lizzie was well, almost three, I guess, um, she made Emma promise to always look after your right. little sister. So Emma, who despised her stepmother, really, and even admits when she gave testimony that of the two sisters, Emma really had more of a grudge against Abby Borden, the victim, right, uh, than Lizzie did. And other friends uh, backed that up by saying, sure, oh, really. sure. Yeah, Emma Borden really had more of a grudge because Emma remembered. Yes. There was um, a nine years years, difference. Yes, okay, nine years, yep. Mm -hmm. Nine years between the two sisters. 
So Lizzie was almost three, um, and that would have made, what, Emma almost 12, I guess, when her mother died. So, of course, it's the old stepmother thing. Right, right. You know, the uh, father marries, and the lady he married, uh, Abby Durfee Gray, her name was, her father was um, just a door-to-door. I think they called him Tinker. They would repair pots and pans, that kind of thing. And they felt that uh, Andrew Borden had married beneath him by marrying Abby. And Abby was pretty long in the tooth. Um, I think she was 34 or thereabout, um, which was old in those days. Sure, an unmarried, yeah. She was, yeah, she was delighted, I mean, to find a man at that age and to find a man like Andrew Borden, uh, who might not have been all warm and cuddly, and but he was um, quite well off and... It was a comfortable home, and she would actually be um, the mistress in her own house and not dependent upon living with family and, and her stepmother. A lot of stepchildren in this one. Andrew Borden was a stepchild. Abby Borden was a stepchild. Lizzie Borden was a stepchild. It wasn't unusual because women did tend to die a lot in childbirth mm. and complications afterwards, and uh, men sometimes married two or three times. Yeah. Um, Really, a trip around Oak Grove Cemetery is a real eye opener. Oh, I bet uh, to how many wives, you know, how many wives and husbands, <laughs> what, what, and how many stepchildren there were. Yeah. Um, what? So, so you have uh, Andrew remarries Abby, uh, and Emma and Lizzie are in this house together. Um, what is that like? Uh, there's a lot of talk, especially in the lead up to the murders. There's a lot mm-hmm. of tension in the house. Uh, and then, of course, you also have Bridget. So can you just sort of paint a picture in terms of what, what it might have been like to live in that house? Well, they moved to 2nd Street. Uh, it was 1872. And at that point, Lizzie was born in 1860. So she was 12. Uh, I'm not good at math. And so Emma would have been 12 and 9. Uh, uh, 20, <laughs> I'm not great at math either, as you can tell. So, yeah, yeah, somewhere in the early 20s. Yeah. Uh, and so when they, they moved there, Andrew wanted to be near his uh, business, which was literally one street over from Main Street. The house, by anyone's description, was modest but comfortable, well-decorated, uh, Andrew had relatives behind him, and at one point, um, right next door. I think that's another reason why he might have ended up settling on 2nd Street. It wasn't a very posh address, and we touched on that before. Mm -hmm. Uh, The mill tycoons, the upper crust of Fall River Society, lived in the north end of town, north of Bedford Street. And as you are going um, up High Street or um, headed toward what they called the Hill District, it's now the Historic District, Um, you'll notice you literally are going up a hill. There's a big vein of granite that runs through Fall River, and it's it's quite uh, not quite as bad as San Francisco, but there are a lot of very, very steep hills. Yes, there are. And outcroppings of granite ledge that you can see. So as as you're going up, I always tell people, if you feel like you're getting lost, go downhill. That'll take you back toward the south end of town and back toward the uh, Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum. 
But that's where all of the stately homes were. Some were indeed mansions. And, of course, Lizzie ended up, after all was said and done, on French Street at the very apex of the hill. Um, her house overlooks, if you go out in the front yard, it overlooks the Taunton River. You can look down the street and see the river and and see all of the stately homes of, of the hill section. So that address, she really had arrived when she got there. Later on, after Emma left her, she put an addition on and uh, uh, started calling the place Maplecroft and calling herself Elizabeth right. because she didn't want to be remembered or called Lizzie Borden because of the, the little poem that we all know. Mm-hmm. and uh, She was trying to distance herself from that whole Lizzie Borden trial. Uh, but getting back to what it was like in Second Street, uh, very few people had telephones. It was a novelty. Mostly commercial businesses had one, the police station, so there was no phone in the home. Uh, Very few people had bathrooms with running water with a tub and all of that. There were chamber pots. There were privies outside. This is what the Borden had. Borden's had a privy in the barn. Uh, They did uh, have a water closet in the basement. It was a little cubicle. They did have city water. The roads were paved. They weren't dirt. And Lizzie and Emma would empty their chamber pots into the um, water closet in the basement. That was part of the routine. Whereas Mr. Borden and, and Mrs. Borden tended to use the outhouse in the barn. Mm. And the morning of the murders, you have Andrew Borden actually emptying the contents of his nighttime chamber pot in the backyard. <laughs> So they were used to living out in the country, and Andrew Borden, um, you know, had more of a farmer, earthy kind of uh, uh, view of things. He was not frivolous, and all of the fripperies and um, luxuries weren't important to him. Lizzie and Emma would have liked to have been cultured girls, and Lizzie's way of, of getting her foot in the door with the people up on the hill was to volunteer at church and church became her entree uh she was sunday school uh teacher for some uh, chinese children Um, she joined the rock street congregational church which is where a lot of the moneyed families went they either went there or they went next door to church of the ascension the episcopal church And she joined uh, many groups there that put her in contact. Uh, They did charitable works, uh, Fruit and Flower Society, visiting. And these are things that the daughters of the big mill owners did. Visit the sick, uh, you know, take flowers. And it was all part of their charity work. Why? These women had nothing else to do. (laughs) And it was, Lizzie was caught in a strange position she was not uh, really able to have a job um, because she was sort of caught between middle class and upper class. Her father could have made her firmly upper class. She had uh, the bloodline through the Bordens to be included. In fact, when she did her grand tour in 1890, she went with uh, Anna and Carrie Borden one of the Braytons and some of the upper crust ladies all did the grand tour of Europe. So she could move to a certain extent in that group. 
And I think, really, that's the worst thing possible. When you're almost there, you know, people who are low income, they don't aspire because they thought, no, that door's not open to me. But when you have a foot in the threshold and you are so close to being the high society, but for your father, who has kind of old-fashioned, outdated uh, notions of comfort, and he controls the purse strings entirely. He had gotten rid of the family carriage and horse because the city of Fall River was going to impose a tax if you lived in the city if you had a horse and carriage. So he got rid of the horse and carriage. Then Lucy either had to walk or use public transportation. And bit by bit, you know, her hold on moving in the circles that she wanted to move in uh, were closing. Uh, when she went to Europe, the well-heeled friends of hers could afford a worth gown, uh, beautiful souvenirs, and Lizzie could afford picture postcards and prints, which she brought home and framed and put on the wall. Also, interestingly, since you have been at the house, you'll notice that Lizzie's room is actually a room within a room. There was a small room on the left, which had been Lizzie's room growing up right. from when they moved in at age 12 until Lizzie came back from the Grand Tour in 1890, and she would have been uh, 30 then. I noticed it's interesting uh, that Emma, at that point, traded rooms with Lizzie, and Emma took the tiny little room, which was not much bigger than a closet. Yeah, mm-hmm. It would hold a twin bed and a little dresser, I think, and a chair, and then Emma went in there and gave Lizzie the nice, roomy uh, bedroom. Um, the reason the house is, is the way it is, it was designed to be a two-family home. It was built for Charles Trafton in 1845, and this is long before the Bordens get there, and it was built as an income property. The Traftons lived on the first floor, and they rented out the second floor. So when the Bordens moved in, Mr. Borden had um, the wall removed in the dining room to make one big room. It had been two tiny bedrooms, and the same thing on the second floor. So that's why you have this kind of odd arrangement of so many doors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you could lock this door. You could close the whole back of the house off from the front, front from the back, because two families were there. Sure, yeah. So they didn't have to overlap in, the, in their comings and goings. Uh, so we mentioned, you know, it did have running water in the sink. They had an ice box. There was a um, water closet in the basement. And it was carpeted, Axminster wool carpeting. The furniture was very out of date. And Lizzie and Emma used the guest room, which Abby would be later murdered in, as kind of their own little apartment. In 1891, there had been a break-in, mm. a very peculiar um, the only thing that things that were stolen were Abby Borden's things, and Lizzie was home at the time, and the maid was home. Uh, the police were originally called in. Of course, Lizzie showed the door in the basement. It looked like it had been um, a nail, a two penny nail. It was rather amateur looking. And Mr. Borden, when he saw the circumstances, told the police to forget about it. And it's always been implied that it it looked like an inside job, Mm -hmm. that this had been done to sort of frighten Mrs. Borden. Um, 
as far as the atmosphere, you asked me what was the atmosphere. It was tense. Yeah. As the girls became women, as Emma had a great deal of influence, all negative, on her younger sister about the stepmother, and now Lizzie was 30 um, and was beginning to object to uh, the way things were, uh, Mr. Borden did give them an allowance of uh, so much a week. He gave each of the women an allowance. Mm-hmm. And Emma and Lizzie could spend it on anything they wanted to. Abby complained because she had to buy household items with her money. Um, but I, I think it was beginning uh, to, to chafe. And the girls tried to get away quite often. In fact, uh, Lizzie, the week before the murders, had left, I think it was um, the 21st of July, to go up to New Bedford to visit friends. And Emma went to visit the Brownells, and and that's where Emma was. Thankfully, Emma had an ironclad alibi Mm -hmm. for the day of the murder, because Emma Borden would have been my first suspect (laughs) due to the uh, unbridled animosity she had toward her stepmother, but thankfully she did have an ironclad alibi. There have actually been theory books written that Emma did do it, but um, <laughs> it would have been impossible when you know the train schedules sure. and everything else Can't... for her to have murdered him on a sofa. We know his time of death almost to the minute, right, and it right. was just around 11, between 11 and 11.05, right, right. um, that she could have come down on the train and murdered Mrs. Borden. Um, and then waited around for him to come home, murder him at 11, and still be back in New Bedford, or rather Fairhaven, to get the telegram. Yeah, so right, right. logistically, it won't work, yeah. you see. Yeah, can you... Lucky for Emma. <laughs> yeah, right. Before before we get more into August 4th and sort of that timeline and establish the facts of that day, can you talk about August 3rd? Um, a lot of interesting th- things happen on August 3rd, and I guess I'll just ask you generally, what what sticks out about that day? I mean, you have the attempted purchase of prussic acid by Lizzie. You well, have... I, yes, I, I'd go back even further. Okay. Let's go back to th- Tuesday night. Okay. Lizzie um, took the train back to Fall River. She was visiting the pools. Mrs. Poole had an invalid daughter named Carrie and also had a daughter named Augusta, who had uh, married and was now living in another town nearby. On the 26th, uh, the three of these ladies left New Bedford and visited Augusta Trip. and then when they came back by carriage, Lizzie got on the train on August 26th and went back to Fall River. And so that weekend, she was there at home with the family. Abby Borden was supposed to be going out to the farm, for a little uh, break from the city heat. It had been quite warm, just like the heat wave we've been having uh, this week. Mm-hmm. It always seems to be awfully hot on August 4th, every year I'm there. <laughs> right. Uh, and it makes wearing those long dresses for the reenactment, uh, you know, a real oh, I bet. Uh, burden. And Tuesday night they had swordfish. Now, remember, Emma is staying with the Brownells, a widow mother and her daughter Helen, who was a dressmaker in Fairhaven, which is a city right over the bridge from New Bedford, very close together. And that night, Lizzie said she was ill. She heard Abby and Andrew vomiting uh, in being sick in their bedroom, the noises of someone being sick. 
because they shared a door. Yes. And Lizzie's bed, after the break-in that we talked about earlier, uh, everyone started locking things up like mad, which is uh, curious. It's like Mr. Borden knew that Lizzie and Emma, uh, perhaps both, uh, were behind that break-in where all of Abby's things were stolen. He started taking to locking the back uh, door to his bedroom, which which goes downstairs to the kitchen, and Lizzie was locking her bedroom, which is in the front of the house, accessible by the front stairs. So you couldn't get from the Borden's bedroom by just opening the door in between and walking in. The layout out, uh, layout of the house is so peculiar. There aren't any hallways. You walk in one bedroom and then into another bedroom and into another bed. They're all connected. Mm -hmm. There's no hallway. Uh, so Lizzie even put a little latch hook on her side of the door so her stepmother and uh, father could never, if they wanted to go to the front of the house, they had to go down the back stairs, walk all the way through the house, and go upstairs. And this is Abby Borden is the mistress of the house. If she wanted to use her sewing machine, which was in the front bedroom, the guest room where Abby will be murdered later, uh, she had to, uh, because Lizzie kept her door on a lock, the communicating door blocked Abby's access. That says a lot to me. Sure. You know, if, if you think about this whole case to me is all about personalities and human nature. You need to, and also the, um, oh, the culture and practices of Victorian era. You can't approach this case from today's mindset. It's how people behaved, um, you know, in that time period. Uh, but also the human nature and people's interrelationships in a close environment, that part hasn't changed a lot. People are always just people. And they were ordinary people, by the way. You know, Lizzie's gotten bigger than life, and, oh, she was extraordinary. No, they, these were just ordinary mm -hmm. people. That, that something extraordinary happened to ordinary people. And that's why I think this case is so fascinating. It has endured for so long. It's only horrifying, uh, I think, when it's, it could happen to you. It, you know, you bring it down to uh, uh, there was nothing special about Andrew Borden. He was a frugal person, hardworking, that's all. Mm -hmm. He wasn't necessarily a monster or mean or anything like that. Abby Borden, very plain, nothing extraordinary about her. There's nothing extraordinary about Lizzie Borden. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and because this sort of thing happened in that kind of family, this helped her a lot, by the way. I know we're digressing here, but when she was uh, actually on trial, the 12 men looking at her, she was five foot three, very demure, fastidiously dressed, very ladylike person, because she uh, moved in the circles with the upper crust, and she tried to, I think the expression is, ape her betters, you know, and so she gave every appearance of being a refined lady and maintained that in public. But the jurors look at, looked at her, and in the closing argument, even her defense attorney, who was a former governor, George Robinson, said to the jury, look at her, 
does she look like a fiend? Yeah. And 12 yeah. of these old guys turned their heads, and they saw her sitting there, dainty a lady as you'd ever want to see. And no, she didn't look like a fiend to them. They all had daughters at home, you know, a lot of them her age, and they couldn't imagine their daughter would ever take a hatchet to them. Therefore, they had to acquit her. Sure. Of course, Lizzie had darn good legal uh, counsel yes, as well. But it was a foregone conclusion. Right, right that it was pretty much a whitewash. They were not going to sure. find her guilty. It would have upset the whole apple cart of, of you know society back then. A Christian lady of that background and uh, would do something like, oh, well, no, that couldn't possibly be so. Um, if it had been some Portuguese um, immigrant in uh, tattered clothing, oh, sure, they could believe that of, of her or some Irish maid who had a, uh, no pun intended, axe to grind. Sure, uh, yeah. yeah, sure, they're capable of murder, but mm -hmm. not that dainty morsel. Right. Not right. Miss Borden, surely not. So that, that helped her uh, quite quite a bit. Mm. But let's get back to Tuesday night. So they were all sick, and then on Wednesday morning, Abby Borden appeared to be the most ill. She went across the street to the family doctor, whose name was Seabury Bowen, known the family a long time, and she complained she thought she was poisoned. And it's hard to know what she meant by that. She brought up to him, well, I knew some people once who got sick like this from eating spoiled cake that had cream centers, cream cakes. And she seemed to indicate that she thought something was wrong with the bread that maybe it was molded or something. It was, I don't know if they knew it, botulism or salmonella, but I don't know that she was saying it was deliberate poisoning by, say, arsenic or something. I think she was probably referring to food poisoning. But Dr. Bowen was alarmed. Later he went across the street to check on her again. Uh, he thought she was actually going to be sick right there in his office. Uh, he saw clients at his home, as did most doctors back in the that time. And Andrew, you wanted to have a look at Andrew, who had also been sick, but dosing himself. This is, a, this is a real insight to Andrew Borden. He would rather not feel well and self-medicate than walk across the street and have to pay a doctor. Right. You know? <laughs> he was a home remedy guy, right. uh, over-the-counter over the prescription kind of guy. Uh, so he was taking this Garfield tea, uh, which was kind of a cure for everything from, you know, indigestion to insomnia. It was nothing but herbs. I think it was centipods and uh, some other things. And he was not feeling well at all, nor would he be feeling well the day of the murders either. And people that he bumped into the day of the murders testified he did not look well. Um, so Wednesday, Lizzie saying she was also not well and never left the house. She spent the day up in her room, and then enter that exciting character, John Vinicum Morse, yes. who was Lizzie's uh, mother's brother. And he was quite a character in and of himself, very eccentric, never married. Um, he was a farmer. He spent a lot of his time out in Hastings, um, Iowa, where he's buried. He also traded in livestock. Those days, men usually turned a hand to several things. So farmer, livestock trader, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. And he dropped in 
unexpectedly, unannounced, which wasn't unusual. He happened to be out on the coast. He was staying with a butcher um, and his son in North Dartmouth. And um, actually, Uncle John had had training as a butcher, too, from Isaac Davis. He was staying with the Davises uh, out in North Dartmouth. I always thought that was an interesting little side note. Uh, he, he knew how to handle, <laughs> yeah, you right. know, an edged tool. Sure. He sure could uh, wield a cleaver, that's for sure. And a cleaver was one of the weapons that was on the short list of what the weapon could be. A cleaver was also a possibility all along. And Lizzie didn't go down to see him. Um, and then John had some commissions to do across the river to Swansea some for himself, and uh, Andrew Borden asked him to do a few things. He would end up spending the night there. Lizzie did admit, though, uh, on Wednesday, somewhere between 6.30 and 7, she went down the street, down to Borden Street, where a longtime friend named Alice Russell, um, Alice Russell used to live next door to the Bordens. She rented rooms there. And uh, Dr. Kelly moved in. Um, in 1891, and Alice Russell moved down to Board Street. So Lizzie went to see Alice and, and really had a lot of very odd things that she said to her. You know, Alice, I feel something's going to happen. Hmm. Father has so many enemies in town, and some man came to the house the other day, and it was very unpleasant. And I thought the other night coming back from a meeting in town, I saw a man lurking around the foundation of the house. I don't know, but that they're going to burn, someone's going to burn the house down over our head. I'm sleeping with one eye open. It was a very curious conversation, and it went on. You know, Mrs. Borden has been very ill, my father, and, you know, Alice, I haven't felt well myself since Tuesday night. Now, this is Wednesday night. This is only one night later. Um... I think something must be wrong with the milk because the milk cans would be left at the top of the side door steps for the family use. And Alice Russell um, sort of, well, Lizzie, that can't be right. I mean, when the milk's delivered, it's daylight. Somebody would notice if, um, you know, something was being put in the milk or something was amiss there. And so Alice is trying to soothe and smooth her over. And I notice uh, a certain uh, amount of amusement. <laughs> Guess who Lizzie sends for immediately on the day of the murder? Not the police. Yeah. And I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but uh, the first person Lizzie sends Bridget out the door after the body of Mr. Borden's discovered a little after 11. Uh, she sends her out to get the doctor. The doctor, Dr. Bowen, isn't home. He's out on calls. Bridget comes back, leaving Lizzie alone in the house with the dead body and a possible murder, murderer sure, yeah, working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know about you, no. but when I, I would have walked in, I saw my father chop the bits on the sofa. My first thought would be to get out of the house. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know. Because she hadn't been outside that long, and the murderer could have been anywhere. But Lizzie didn't make any effort to leave the house. Very damning, yes, I find. Yes, yes. And she said, okay, well, Bridget, run down and get Alice Russell. She doesn't tell Bridget exactly where Alice Russell lives. 
So Alice Russell first goes to the wrong house and then has to stop somebody on the street to find out, well, which one actually are these places, um, you know, do the, the Russells live? And so I've actually done tests and um, how many minutes Bridget would have been gone. Uh, and I find there's ample time, we've actually done it in real time, to change your clothes, wash a hatchet, and hide it. <laughs> mm. You know, she, mm-hmm. she was left alone. Lizzie, during the time of the murder, the day of the murder, was always in charge of sounding the alarm. She was alone, you know, when uh, Bridget was outside on the day of the murder. Now we're, now we're coming into that. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Now to, we're coming into Thursday morning. John did spend the night, Wednesday night, in the guest bedroom. That came down to breakfast. Um, Mrs. Borden came down, and Mr. Borden, of course, Bridget was first up because she had to go down and uh, stoke the stove and start breakfast pep- preparation. And then the rest of the family came down, and, and pretty much one after the other, and and sat down and enjoyed uh, uh, the famous mutton broth. <laughs> you know, leftover. They they sort of had what I call the Amish style breakfast, where you would have meat. And sort of things that we would have for supper, you know, um, they would have for breakfast sliced cold mutton and hot mutton broth and Johnny cakes, which is a regional delicacy. And, and of course, the pears that so woven into the Borden story, a lot of ripe pears uh, on, the, on the pear trees on the property in the backyard. Lizzie didn't come down. She was not an early riser. And didn't really like to eat with her stepmother and father and had admitted that, uh, you know, they didn't dine with them if they, if it wasn't absolutely necessary. And so Lizzie got her own cookies and coffee. They had sugar cookies and that's what she said she had for her breakfast. And, um, Mrs. Borden, the last time uncle John, he left, to go see some cousins, and and luckily for him, he gets an ironclad alibi too, because there are theory books that Uncle John had motives to do away with his uh, former brother-in-law. I don't know why you know he would go after Abby Borden, but um, he does have an alibi. The cousins give him uh, where he was at the the, uh, the Emory's on Way Bossett Street during that time. Later, Uncle John would uh, say he took the horse car back because he was coming back on Thursday to have lunch. And I'm sure they were probably still having mutton. There was still mutton left over for lunch. It was leftovers that all that Bridget had to do was warm them over. And he took the horse car back, and later he was able to give extraordinary detail about what he saw. I I guess there was a group of priests and um, unusually detailed, which made it look kind of uh, fishy. Yeah. Why he would note this? It's like he was going to know he would need an alibi, mm. and so that that raised some eyebrows. And Uncle John was pretty much the first suspect when he walked down the street to the post office, which was a, maybe a couple blocks away. Um, a, a crowd followed him, and he had to get a policeman, you know, to walk him safely home. He was going to post a letter to the Davises saying that he was going to be staying at the Borden home. 
uh, with the girls while all this investigation was unfolding. Uh, by that point, by the way, there were mobs of people sure, all over yeah. Second Street. Yeah. Within, I'd say, a half an hour after the news, uh, because it was lunch hour, you know, the body was found at, um, well, I guess he was killed somewhere between 11, 11, 05. What, what time was Abby call, killed? What time? Well, you know, that, that has always been up in the air. Right. We know Bridget went outside to wash the windows. She got sick in the backyard, too, by the way, because um, I guess she'd been eating some of the leftovers and stuff that apparently made everybody else so sick, and she had vomited in the backyard a little after 9, and she was um, starting to get her equipment together to wash the windows. I was, I was surprised that Abby Borden asked her to do it because Bridget was not feeling well either, uh, I have my theory about that, too, but we're just sticking to what we know. <laughs> I, you know, I'll do my own theory book one day. Right, right. Uh, she saw uh, the Kelly maid outside and young Irish girls being what they were uh, and homesick for home and uh, walked over to the fence between the two houses and struck up a conversation with the Kelly's maid. Uh, her last name was Doolin. And Lizzie said at that point she was sitting at the kitchen table having coffee. And, and she also said she did some addressing of uh, rappers. In those days, you, would, you could address your own rappers and, and have the newspapers delivered. I guess you could save money that way by doing it yourself. Um, but the interesting thing is the table was between the two kitchen windows then. So from Liz, Lizzie's vantage point, she knew exactly where Bridget was, you know, she could look out the window and see Bridget talking to the Doolin uh, girl. And Bridget um, later said she'd forgotten either the pole or the brush and had come back in the kitchen to get these items out of the sink room, which now if you go to the house, it's the downstairs bathroom off the kitchen. And it was a pantry and a sink room. The sink room was accessed immediately inside the side door. Now, that, that wall's been taken down, so you know, it's hard to picture it. But she said she didn't see Lizzie in the kitchen when she came in. So Lizzie at that point was not in the kitchen. And some will believe, no, she was up on the second floor killing Abby Borden right. at that point. I happen to be one of those people sure, who believe yeah, that's yeah. exactly what was going on. Um, but then she went outside. But the point is, Lizzie had the house to herself, and she was inside. Okay. And, you know, um, Bridget, many witnesses saw Bridget out there. Bridget did come in. She even said to Lizzie, you can lock the door. Since that break-in, they were all lock and key happy. And there was a, a it was a lock, um, slide bolt is what it was. It wasn't a hook and eye. She says, you can lock the door, Miss Lizzie, if you want to. I can get water from the barn. This all comes out in testimony, of course, later. Yeah. Uh, and the fact is, Lizzie didn't lock that door because Bridget, remember, did have to come back in to get, I think it was a pole or something to wash, and the door, she came right in. And that's when she said, I don't recall seeing Lizzie in, in the kitchen, because you can just look to the right and see the whole kitchen. Sure. When yep. you come in, it's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting, and I, you know, 
if you think this was premeditated, of course Lizzie could not have locked that door. That was her whole alibi. The door was not locked. It was open. Someone came in and killed father. If she had locked that door, her goose would have been cooked because she would have been locked in the house with a dead body. Yep. And how could anybody else have, you know, gotten in to do the deed? So the door, or, or uh, actually, um, you know, her stepmother upstairs. So the time of death for Abby Borden, they give a pretty broad uh Somewhere probably between, say, 9.20, 9.25, and as late as maybe an hour later, maybe okay. 10.25. Within that hour at some point, and this was the time period, uh, Bridget was outside chit-chatting with um, Kelly's maid, uh, washing the windows. She did not wash all of them, the ones that nobody could see in the back she didn't do typical this is what i love about studying this case it's the human nature tidbits okay they're not going to see that window no one's going to care right i'm not going to wash that one and it's hot and i'm tired i just threw up in the back this is how you get your head inside of that house okay by studying the people and reading the witness witness statements that were done hours after the murder. You know, after 10 months goes by, and you get around to the trial in June of 1893, those witnesses have been coached by attorneys. They have now got selective memory, what they recall and don't recall. But boy, on the day of the murder, read the witness statements. Yeah, yeah. And the first thing, you know, that comes out of their mouth before they've had time is the stuff I put the most faith in. So, so, so uh, what's the state of Abby's body compared to that of Andrew's body? So yes. Lizzie, so so Lizzie supposedly she she discovers the body of her father and yells to Bridget and then and then tells Bridget to go get the you know to go get Alice Russell the doctor, the doctor mm-hmm. and uh, again leaving and, and- Lizzie alone. Um, so it, yeah, and what she what she says to Bridget's interesting. Yes, uh, Bridget, father is hurt. I don't know, but he's killed. I need a doctor. And off Bridget goes. Bridget's running all up and down Second Street and Borden Street and back and forth and up the driveway, but she's not in the house seeing what's going on. Uh, who does finally say something is Adelaide Churchill who is the neighbor to the north next door, Mm -hmm. who sees Bridget running up and down, very agitated. Lizzie has not let Bridget see the body of Andrew. And that was possibly her first inclination. I know it would be mine if I were in the shoes of Bridget Sullivan. My first thought would be to go see myself. But immediately she sends her across the street. And she's over there sometime banging on the door. Finally, Phoebe Bowen answers the door and explains where Dr. Bowen is and what has happened and what's going on. This takes some time. And then Bridget runs back. We've timed it, actually. And um, Lizzie had ample time. But then enter Mrs. Churchill, who's in the window watching this flurry of uh, going back and forth. And she sees Lizzie at the screen door on the side which overlooks her kitchen, 
and it's also directly in front of the sink, the sink room and the sink. Mm -hmm. And Lizzie is standing right in front of it. Mm -hmm. And she calls, you know, out, Lizzie, what is wrong? And Lizzie said, I do wish you would come over, Mrs. Churchill. And Mrs. Churchill, I think, does something so human. Uh, as I say, these are the things that mean the world to me in figuring out what happened that day. I think she stops and either puts on a different hat or, or some, you know, to, and with all that going on, it was a funny thing that she took time to do something about her appearance sure. before she went out the door. But she does, and she goes over, opens the screen door, and now Lizzie is sitting on the bottom step of the back stairs, and she's telling Mrs. Churchill what has happened. <clears throat> Bridget, by this point, is down at Alice Russell's, and Mrs. Russell spots someone she knows. His name is Tommy Bowes. Um, I think Tommy actually had rented a room. Uh, Mrs. Churchill was a young widow, and her father had actually been mayor of Fall River, an early mayor. It was a big, rambling, Italianate Victorian and I guess to supplement her income, because her husband Charles had died, left her widowed very young, she did take in rumors, um, mortars, mm-hmm. you know. And she recognized Tommy, ran across the street, and, and of course he was standing there, um, and there was a newspaper man named Cunningham. He was what they used to call a stringer. And uh, he was very excited <clears throat> to hear Mrs. Churchill talking to Tommy Bowes, you know, oh my God, something terrible's happened to Andrew Borden, uh, sending for a doctor, and uh, Lizzie's there by herself, and, you know, we need to call the police. And um, that's when Mr. Cunningham said, well, there's a phone at Gorman's Wallpaper and Paint Store down the street, not very far. I'll go call it in. And off runs Mr. Cunningham. He had just come out of Wade's Market, which was a couple of buildings over from the Borden home. And he was headed, you know, downtown and happened to be Johnny on the spot when he overheard all of this going on. But first he called a couple of newspapers before he called the police station. (laughs) And once again, it's that human nature nugget. Okay. So those people, they behave just like we do today. Sure. He saw a hot story. Oh, man, Borden might be bleeding to death on that sofa, but by God, here's a hot scoop. And then he calls. Who should pick up the phone but Marshal Rufus Hilliard, chief of police? Well, they didn't call him chief of police in those days. He was city marshal. A lot of the men on this day had crossed over to Rocky Point, which was a big resort amusement park, for the annual policeman's picnic. And so we had uh, a reduced crew. And if, I guess if you were going to commit a murder, this was not a bad day to do it because, um, you know, there was some reduced staff. And some of the, the senior officers, so the young men with families and children, could take this day off. This is why the marshal happened to be on the phone, the city marshal. And I think that call came in somewhere around 11, 19. Okay. Interesting to note, and this is important, nobody's watch and clock agreed. You know, nowadays we're digital and everybody uh, is synced. 
Uh, in those days, the town hall clock might have said 11, but uh, Mrs. Kelly next door, her watch was slow. And, um, you know, Andrew Borden on his way back that morning before he got home stopped to check on a window being put in uh, on South Main Street for a business that he was renting. And there was that clock. And, and so all of the times, none of them are pinpoint because everybody's watches and clocks were not all synchronized. So what I'm saying, the police station, I think, call came in at 11.19. That's approximate, you know. Uh, the men who were in charge of putting in the window, uh, the name was, um, I think, Maypother in shirt sleeves, which was... Uh, Actually, Court Mont, she was French-Canadian. That translates short sleeves. Uh, they mentioned they heard the clock in the town hall. The city hall had a big clock in the tower. And that's how he pinpointed, you know, when Andrew Borden came and mm -hmm. left and uh, that he recalled hearing the... the... And, and actually, Bridget, when she went upstairs, when she came in from washing the windows and decided she was going to go lie down upstairs um, after Mr. Borden came home. She recalled hearing it striking 11, and shortly afterwards, Lizzie screamed up the back right, stairs, right. come down quick, Bridget, something has happened to Father. And uh, Mr. Borden had not been feeling well the day of the murders, and he left after breakfast, I think sometime after 9, uh, Uncle John had had left before he had left. John said the last he saw of Abby Borden, she had dust cloth on her head, little kerchief, and was flicking a feather duster mm -hmm. at the furniture. She was very house proud, very domestic, Abby Borden. Mm -hmm. um, I studied her and her family and her sisters. Uh, very interesting. She had a half-sister that gave very interesting testimony about the atmosphere in the house, and how the girls treated Abby, and how the girls treated Abby's sister, half-sister. Her name was Bertie Whitehead. Um, Bertie Whitehead testified that Lizzie and Emma always acted as if they were better than she, and they sort of looked down their nose at Abby's relatives. Right, right. Uh, also, a lot of the problem... The tension in the house started even earlier, I think it was about 1887, when Andrew Borden um, put a house in, in Abby Borden's name, and it was the Whitehead Gray house. This was uh, Oliver Gray was Abby Borden's father, and uh, Bertie Whitehead was the half-sister who had financial you know, problems. She had young children and a husband was pretty hand-to-mouth, and um, she didn't want to have to move out of the house. So Andrew saw a good real estate opportunity, and so he bought it and put it in Abby's name. And it was Emma who came to her father and said, you did this and you didn't tell uh, me or my sister that you had done this for Abby. What you do for her people you should do for your own flesh and blood. And that is when Lizzie stopped calling Abby Borden mother. Right. And right. they started calling her either Abby or Mrs. Borden. And uh, I know one of the police officers on the day of the murder, while he was interrogating uh, Lizzie, 
And I think also later at the inquest, which is the only time Lizzie speaks uh, during the whole process, Mm -hmm. she'll say, um, she's not my mother. She was my stepmother and made it very pointed. You know, this was my stepmother. Didn't even want her referred to as. And how were your relations, you know, Miss Borden, with your stepmother? Well, they were cordial. Right. Were they cordial? And she said, friendly like. Would you say cordial? And then that wonderful zinger. Well, says Lizzie, that all depends on your idea of cordiality. <laughs> and you know, for those people who say, oh, "Well, Lizzie was under the influence of morphine, and she did poor thing," you know, didn't know what she was saying. If you read her inquest testimony, I find her sharp as a tack. And sometimes she won't answer, and she'll bluntly say, "You know, I don't even know what your name is." You're asking me this. I don't even know who you are. That does not sound to me like someone who's all dopey on morphine. Sure. sure. Um, but of course, you know, the defense made a lot of that. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and we'll and we'll get back to that cuz the inquest is so interesting and um you know, and then then how it's not allowed to be used at the trial. But I want to go back again to a- Andrew Borden is freshly dead and killed. Uh, in the sitting room, uh, Lizzie sends out Bridget. Um, shortly thereafter, people enter the house. I, I think Alice mm-hmm. Russell, Doctor mm-hmm. Bowen, um, yes. uh, Mrs. Churchill. Um, what what happened? And then and the policeman. And the poli- you know, it was like an anthill. If yeah. you could, you know, get a God's point of view and look down on that house. It's a steady stream of people yes, right, right. coming in like ants to an anthill. And this is where police procedure is like the Keystone Cop. Right, yes, yes. And my gosh, anybody, even Mr. Petty, who used to rent the second floor when it was under the Trafton's ownership, they even let Mr. Petty come in. He was walking by. And saw something was going on. I mean, just about anybody, you know, people were beginning to gather uh, by the hundreds all up and down 2nd Street, rubbernecking, um, a bunch of reporters trying to climb over the fence because at that time the fence went completely across the front of the house. Um, Anything that would have been evidence was trampled. Mm -hmm. There was an issue with the barn because, of course, Lizzie said at the time her father was murdered. Of course, we got to have that open door again. Yep. Make sure that door is unlocked so someone else could get in. Uh, she couldn't put herself upstairs because we have one dead body already on the second floor. Bridget was taking a nap on the third floor, so Lizzie couldn't be up there. And, of course, on the first floor, we've got a murdered father. So where does Lizzie say she is? I was in the barn. I was up in the hayloft. Why? Well... I was going to go fishing to Marion on Monday. That is true. That checks out. Uh, I needed to get something to make sinkers with. If you read her witness state, the witness statements that were taken on that day and listen to her inquest, that will change. I needed a piece of metal to fix a broken screen in my bedroom. Well, no broken screen was ever found. Mesh, I think they called it. Uh, so she gives a few reasons. Well, how long were you up there, Miss? Borden. Uh, well, it goes from a half an hour and then 
she whittles it down a bit. Well, what else were you doing? Turning over old boards, this and that. And I had picked up some pears off the ground. Well, how many? I don't know, three, four maybe. Um, eating them slowly, looking out the window on a hot day in a dusty uh, hayloft. All of this sounded awfully fishy to the policeman. Uh, so Officer Medley, he was probably the one of the brightest in the bunch. He and he and um, Philip Harrington, they were on top of the situation pretty quickly. Medley went out to the hayloft, and he remembered there was a thick layer of dust from the hay, uh, and he didn't see any trace of footprints or that someone in a long dress had been walking around. No paracores appeared. Of course, you don't eat a paracor or the stem. There, there was nothing mm-hmm. look like anybody had spent any amount of time walking around up there. Certainly not a half an hour, 20 minutes. Um, that doesn't even jive with the timeline. So um, this was all very, very, very damaging uh, to Lizzie's uh, story. But... Later on, because so many people had corrupted the crime scene, it was very hard to make Medley's observations stick. There were two kind of rambunctious boys. They referred to as Brownie and me. Um, Hightail was up there, and they were up to shenanigans, uh, once again contaminating the, the crime scene. Uh, people were walking in and out all over. Um, and then, of course, Mrs. Borden's body, getting back to the condition of the bodies. Um, Lizzie, by this point, when Mrs. Churchill has arrived, Dr. Bowen has finally gotten there. Police are milling about. Lizzie is now, at this point, on a little set key that was in the dining room and then being fanned. She, they had moved her from the kitchen, and she's on the set key. And suddenly, one of the women, uh, well, we should uh, inform Mrs. Borden, where where is your stepmother? Um, and Lizzie said something very curious. I don't know, but I think I heard her come in mm. and go upstairs earlier. I mm. thought, wow. Well, when would that have been? Yeah, right, right. Okay, well, and why didn't you say something sooner? And why didn't someone, you know, why didn't you go meet her at the door and say, don't go in there? Something horrible, you know. Is in the in the sitting room. I don't want you to see. Uh, it's very bizarre. And so Lizzie sends Bridget up the front stairs. Bridget's scared to death. She's the only one with a good sense that yeah, day. Right. She, wasn't, she wouldn't even spend the night that night sure, in the house. Yeah, yeah. She went across the street, you know, and stayed across the street. Um, Uncle John had to go get her Friday morning, you know, to bring her in to cook breakfast, and then she packed up and left for good and stayed with uh, relatives in the city. Of course, she couldn't leave town till after the inquest, and uh, but that's another story. Uh, so Mrs. Churchill volunteers to go upstairs with Bridget, sort of go along with, don't worry, I, I'm with you, because remember, the second floor has not yet been searched, so the, the women creep up the steps. Bridget is in the lead. She's going straight up. Mrs. Churchill happens to look to the left about the sixth or seventh step up that run of steps. If you look to the left, you have bird's eye view under the bed, and she spies the body of Abby Borden on, flat on her face under the bed between the bureau and 
the bed. That's the northeast corner of that room. And Bridget actually goes into the room and looks over the mattress to see what has happened. Mrs. Churchill runs downstairs. Dr. Bowen is just getting back from sending a telegram to Emma. And the telegram is telling Emma to come home immediately that her father is ill. He didn't want to say your father has been murdered because uh, Emma was staying with an elderly lady, Mrs. Brownell. He didn't want to upset them. So he just said, come home quickly, father gravely ill. Of course, he had not known about Mrs. Borden yet. Right. So he smacks into Adelaide Churchill and, oh, I would love to, you know, have been a fly on the wall for this. And Mrs. Churchill can barely sputter out. All she can say is, there's an, a, another. And he immediately runs up the stairs. And that is, you know, when the body of Abby Borden is found. And by that point, it's about 1135, mm-hmm. 1135, 1140 in that little time frame. And now we have two bodies. Um, and he noticed, he put his hands on her head and in the wounds and the blood was congealed yes the body was cooler and it had every appearance that she predeceased her husband by as much as an an hour uh, forensics being what they were and there's been a lot of talk about well if mr borden had died first his estate would have passed to his wife. And so was it important, and up to up to a point, yeah, that there is some importance in the order of death. Um, but, yeah, it sure it appeared, and I agree with the findings there, as primitive as they were. They also removed the stomachs that day. Right, right. What, what, did, it, yeah. what did the police find that day in terms of, evidence that they used going forward as you said i mean it really wasn't a great operation as far oh, it was as terrible it the... reminds me a little bit of the john benet ramsey mm-hmm. uh, i have an interest in true crime but mostly victorian true crime but you know uh, i see some parallels with contemporary cases even today things get botched for one reason or another and um so much was done wrong at the borden uh, case. It even came up, someone suggested to take a picture of the retina of Abby Borden's eyes, and the last thing she saw would, should still be on there, and if they took a photo, they'd be able to see the killer. And that came purely out of the Jack the Ripper thing. That little The, the Ripper case was not that uh, long ago. It was, right. what, 1888? We're only at 1892, so a lot of these new uh, fangled ideas about forensics. Some of that came out of, uh, you know, the Ripper uh, investigation. But they found on the bed a hunk of um, Abby's hair that had possibly caught in the hatchet or had been pulled off. They found the little dust scarf she had on her head to keep her hair clean, um, shredded. It had been cut, and that was also bloody. There was blood on the bedspread, on the pillow sham. Um, Then as far as Mr. Borden, there was blood. They counted the blood spots on the door behind 
the head, which leads into the front parlor. There was blood on the picture over the sofa, which I think is called the Village Elms. And I'm sitting here looking at a copy of it over my sofa. Oh, wow. I have a Lizzie room. I'm talking to you from oh, my wow. Lizzie yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah it, it's just loaded with my you know memorabilia and stuff. Uh, in fact, I have a life-size uh, stand-up of Lizzie looking at us from my corner. Uh, so, yeah, you, you have to live what you love, I find. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, surround yourself with these things. Did, did they take anything from the house that day? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, they removed the stomachs, of course. They right. They took samples of hair from both bodies. The stomach tags and the hair samples are actually on exhibit at the Historical Society. They have uh, an amazing collection from the proceedings, you know, um, right there on exhibit. You can go. First time I saw the tag, it says contents of Andrew Borden's stomach. It really gives you a jolt. They put the stomachs in glass bottles, and they sent them up to Dr. Wood at Harvard Medical School, you know, to have the contents. um, And we did learn from that, very useful. This was the one thing they did right, that Abby Borden's digestion had not progressed as far as Mr. Borden's. Um, there were still large pieces of uh, looked like fruit peel. That was probably a pear. Um, Mr. Borden's much tiny, tinier pieces of food, indicating you know that his digestion had progressed much further. Um, but there are a lot of variables, so you can't put all your faith in that. It has to do with uh, you know weight and. Um, there are different factors about sure. digestion, but it was pretty obvious that she died before he right, did, not right. only because of the congealed blood, but her breakfast was not very much digested at all, which suggests when she got up from the breakfast table, they all got up a little bit before 9, John went out, then Andrew went out, then Abby started you know, walking around doing her chores, went upstairs, she was going to sew some pillow slips up, uh, the bed had already been made up after John stayed in it. Um, so that leads um, me to believe it was probably closer to 9.30 than 10.30. Mm-hmm. I think as soon as Bridget was out of the way with work that would keep her out there for a while, that's when Abby died. And that would have put it closer to 9.30 than 10.30. Andrew had been spotted that day going in and out of banks, doing different businesses. And the teller and uh, Abraham Hart saw Andrew and said he looked very unwell. Also, um, a gentleman who was renting a store bumped into Andrew in front of the granite block, and uh, he was questioned. So Andrew had been seen by quite a few people on the street. Whether that he was, I, I would say he probably was home a little sooner than usual, Mm -hmm. and the time he arrived back home was about quarter of 11, based on what everybody could put together, and of course there's a little leeway because none of the clocks and watches were exactly right, Right. and when he came in, um, he tried to get apparently in the side door, but that was locked. When Bridget was done with the windows and came inside, to do the inside of the windows, it was about 10:15 when she came inside. She put the door on the on the lock, and so Andrew couldn't get in. He he went back out to Second Street and went up the front steps trying to use his key. 
and he was agitated because for some reason he couldn't even get in with his key. That's very suggestive to me because in the morning his job, it was a triple lock front door. There was a dead bolt, there was a throw bolt, and then there was a key lock. And he usually kept the front door on a, just a key lock. So, of course, all the family members, when they left the house, always had their house key with them. And for some reason, somebody had thrown the other two locks. And who should spot him but Mrs. Kelly, his neighbor next door, who was late going to the dentist that morning. And she saw him trying to get in. He had come around from the side, which was the family entrance usually, the side door, and trying to open the door. Now, Bridget will testify she was washing the right-hand window in the sitting room, and she heard the noise at the front door, which is only, I think I measured it as 20 steps away, and had to let him in. And while she was letting him in, somewhere around quarter of 11, uh, she said a little swear word of some sort, and she heard Lizzie laughing at her from the top of the stairs. Right. And that is her testimony mm -hmm. on that day, because they asked her, well, where were you when Mr. Borden came in, and what are the details? And she said, this is what happened. I heard Miss Lizzie laugh at the top of the stairs, laughing at me for what I was saying, you know, trying to, she was trying to get the door open to let him in. Remember, she's washing the windows. Her hands are wet. And you have, I think it's a, I think it's an enamel doorknob. So she was having a little trouble throwing these locks to let him in. Um, I find it interesting that all the locks were engaged. Yes. Why was that mm -hmm. necessary? Yeah. And Lizzie's at the top of the <laughs> stairs, very yeah, near yeah. Abby's body at that point. If she had, uh, yeah, yeah, if she had turned around. Lizzie also testified that morning she'd run upstairs with some clean laundry and was in her room for a few minutes and had to uh, make a little repair on a blouse, uh, a tab that she had to sew on. And they said, well, when you came back down, was the door to the guest room open or closed? She said, well, it was closed. But yet when Mrs. Churchill and Bridget go upstairs, because Lizzie has said to them, I think I heard her come in up front. The right. door's wide open, and we know it because Mrs. Churchill sees the body under the bed. Now the door is open. These are the little tidbits, you know, that are very incriminating uh, as to the guilt or innocence of Lizzie. And uh, I think she catches herself several times uh, on the detail. The thing to do is not to talk too much. And Lizzie kept talking every time she would add a little something more. And that's dangerous because you slip up sometimes. Sure, yeah. And you, you don't have consistency, and that's when they catch you. So At, at what point uh, do they discover <laughs> there's, a, the, there's a hatchet head? That's discovered, and I think ultimately argued by the police and prosecution that that was part of the murder weapon. Is that is that discovered on August fourth? Oh no, that's a story in itself. I've gotten very intrigued with all of the police that were there, and it's a a big cast that seems like you know everybody and their brother um, 
had to run down to the Borden house, and it was quite exciting. Um, they did what I would determine to be a fairly cursory search immediately. It was Lizzie by that point, and no one told her to, uh, after the body of Abby was found. I was surprised she'd want to be in her room. That's where the body was, right in the room next to her. She had to walk by that room, went into uh, her bedroom, and changed into a pink and white loose garment they called a wrapper. That's so you could loosen your corset. And then, Once again, it helps to know Victorian custom. Uh, it really helps as a window on putting together uh, the case, how women would have behaved. Um, no one ever saw a woman in her, uh, it's almost like a house coat, only family and intimate friends. Uh, but it gave her the appearance of being sort of um, very feminine and vulnerable and had just had this terrible shock. And she's lying on the little fainting couch she had in her bedroom in her little wrapper, uh, fanning herself. And, of course, Dr. Bowen now comes in and gives her a little bromo-caffeine for her nerves. And the police are running around the yard. They're looking behind the fence on 3rd Street, they're looking in the privy, they're in the barn, they're in the hayloft. They're looking all over the yard. They're down in the basement. And it's almost too many cops. And one thinks, I, oh, I found a claw head hatchet and a, a kindling hatchet out, over by the furnace. Because Mr. Borden did put, um, when they moved in, he put in central heating. They had a furnace. It was coal-fired. And so a lot of the little uh, rooms in the basement was, was all chopped up into storage areas. Um, a couple of them were for holding coal, and the furnace was near that one. And by the furnace, they did find the famous claw head and a, another small, uh, I think it was like a kindling hatchet. Um, and even that was not handled very well. Uh, one of the policemen thought, oh, I think I saw... So-and-so brought it upstairs, and no, I, I think, you know, he wrapped it in brown paper. You know, it really, when it, this all came to trial, and the testimony really put the police in a bad light, and the newspapers were going to town with that. It almost had them looking like the Keystone Cops uh, running around like a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off. Yeah. The, the evidence gathering was very haphazard. So Lizzie, uh, when they wanted to search her room, she said, well, I'm not well. I think by that point her minister had arrived. And, of course, the doctor. And in those days, people had a lot of respect for the minister and doctor. And mm-hmm. if they said, oh, she can't be disturbed, a policeman would back off. Sure, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Would, they wouldn't now, but they did then. Yep. And so Lizzie was pretty much uh, not pressured that much. Um, as I said, it was a cursory search. I know one of the um, policemen, as he was leaving her room after being told that, you know, Miss Borden was not well, um, happened to notice there, there's a very shallow, I think it's 13 inches, I've measured it, in, in what was Emma's room, which adjoined, it was actually inside of Lizzie's room. 
he saw something rolled up on the floor of that little shallow carpet. And it looked like it had been on the floor rolled up in a rug or something. And at the time, he had wanted to investigate it. But as I say, I think the minister and the doctor were probably in that room at that point and had instructed him that she was not well. And Lizzie said, it will make me ill. And so he curtailed a more thorough search. And Lizzie was left often alone. Mrs. Bowen took her up some toast and tea later. I think Alice Russell went up a few. But there were periods when Lizzie was totally by herself in that room. Yeah. What, what was uh, what was August that I, it's so crazy to think about? And I know you mentioned that, that Bridget had the good sense to get the hell out of the house. Uh, oh, yeah. I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have stayed there. But what, August 4th, the night of the murder, Lizzie's there. Uh, Emma is back. I mean, and they stay in the yes, house. Yes, and the- a- Alice, right, Alice Russell, this was quite a custom, as I've learned. Uh, quite often a close family friend would come to be with a bereaved family under normal circumstances uh, to handle, you know, people arriving with food or answer the door so the family wouldn't be disturbed while they were trying to uh, get the undertaker in there. And of course, uh, right away... Before even Mrs. Borden was discovered, I think, at some point, um, Lizzie had said she would like to have Winward, you know. Uh, and I thought, my gosh, she's a cool customer. At a time like that, she's already you know, got the funeral, planning the funeral in her mind. But uh, Winward and his assistant came, and, of course, they uh, worked on the bodies and got them ready uh, to be laid out. Um and that would have been done in the home, as was the Borden funeral. The funeral parlor industry uh, didn't take off till m- much later. Right, right. You know. So the bodies so are in the home. The bodies are in yeah. the home until they're buried on August six, right? Uh, well, they're not well, buried. They, but... they were. Yeah, they were on cooling boards, and um, I found one on eBay, and the, the owner of the house purchased it. It was kind of like. Um, woven cane like a cane chair and that allowed i guess fluids to drip through the hole the wooden kind had holes bored in it i've seen the wooden cooling boards and that the body would be there is a picture online of andrew borden on the cooling board with his um from the sternum all the way through to his abdomen is open you know his clothing has been removed and this is when they took the stomach out. There are actual uh, photos. Um, crime scene photography wasn't a thing. And the police decided they wanted to do it. It, once again, came out of the Ripper case. You remember the pictures of the Ripper's victims. This was in its infancy, the importance of crime scene photography. Unfortunately... They didn't have a police uh, crime scene photographer, but there was Mr. James Walsh, who was a portraiture uh, photographer, and they hired him. He comes to the Borden house. Sadly, the bodies had been moved several times. So the picture you see of Andrew Borden on the sofa Mm -hmm. is not the original position that he was found in. They went through his pockets, they being the police, and they found he had quite a lot of cash on him. 
which is something that kind of ruled out that a burglar had done this. Right. right. His gold watch, and it was quite a lot of money. I'm thinking it was probably somewhere around $70, $68, $70. All of that was still there. Nothing had been stolen from the house. and you know, So what was the reason? Um, anyway, they had moved his body. Uh, he's much more propped up, I think, on the pillow in the photo. Abby had been turned right over to Dr. Bowen when they went to pulled open the shutters and got a good look at her on the rug. The rug at the time was a dark maroon, and of course congealed and clotted blood is that dark maroon color. So the blood wasn't instantly seen. Uh, so they opened the shutters uh, all through the boarding house. They had interior shutters. And, uh, you know, when you would clean a room, you would close the shutters against the dust from the street and the bright sunlight fading. So they they opened the shutters and then they saw a dark stain, which you can see in the crime scene photos of Abby Borden. They have moved the bed out of the way. They have set the tripod up, Mr. Walsh. And if you look in the bureau mirror, you'll see the camera, the picture of Abby in the floor. If you look up in, in the mirror, you'll see actually Mr. Walsh's camera shooting mm. these pictures. Wow. And you'll see a dark circle around Abby's head. Um, what, uh, so, so, again, August 4th that night, um, there's a lot of people in the house. The bodies are there. Yeah, you have you have Alice staying, Alice. and Uncle John. And yeah, Uncle, Uncle John. John stayed. Mm-hmm. He stayed, and he in, stayed the... in the room where Abby was killed, <laughs> which really took some nerve. Yeah. I mean, I I I've had uh, I've slept you know in the house many many times, and quite often the room that might be open is the the. Um, the room where more spent the night, the guest room. I I still find it very creepy to, to have I to sleep. I slept there. Yeah, my, yeah. that's uh, when I the yeah. one time I stayed there. My 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 brother <laughs> insisted that that be the room that we stay in, and yeah, yeah. No, it, it it gave me yeah, some I pause. Sleep, yeah, I sleep with a nightlight, the door open, <laughs> and one eye. Right. <laughs> yeah, and this is what a hundred and some hundred and twenty some years later. It's. Yeah, it's the most requested room, and uh, many people have uh, not been able to stay right, in there. Right. And of course, the paranormal people uh, really find all kinds of cold spots and this sort of thing in in there. But yeah, they had actually cut a large piece of the carpet that was bloodstained for evidence. They took the sofa that Mr. Borden died on as evidence. That's been removed. There are pictures of all of this. Walsh not only photographed the outdoors and barn and yard and all of that street, he photographed the crime scenes um, before and after the sofa was removed, the carpet that was cut off the floor underneath Abbey Borden. All of the bloody clothes were put down in the cellar in the washroom. Another curious thing happened the night of the murder. We have Alice Russell sleeping in the master suite which was right behind Lizzie's room, adjoining mm-hmm. door. Lizzie in her room, Emma in her room, Uncle John in the room where Abby was killed, cool as a cucumber. And um, I guess right right around 
about 8.30 or so, Lizzie started to go downstairs with uh, her slop pail. A slop pail was um, tall. It had a handle, and it was used for your wash bowl and pitcher. She had washed herself up and, you know, poured from her wash bowl and pitcher, poured the dirty water in the slop pail and was taking it downstairs, I guess, to dispose of. <clears throat> and I often wondered why she didn't throw it down the kitchen sink because there was a kitchen sink. Maybe there were other things in that slop pail. Yeah. But on her way um, down the stairs, Alice Russell, who was in the room adjoining hers, literally a door, one door separating them, and that door was now open. The one between the Borden's master suite and Lizzie's room was open. Alice said, I'll go downstairs with you and carry the light because they lit <clears throat> the house with kerosene lamps. And so <clears throat> they go downstairs with Alice carrying the lamp, and all of this is noted because Officer Hyde is out in the yard patrolling, and he sees a light moving through the house, through the kitchen, going into the stairs. You can see it very easily. I think I have a video of it, actually, um, and entering the basement into the washroom. Right at the bottom of the stairs, directly in front of you, would have been the water closet, cubicle. If you turn left and another left, you'd have been in the washroom. And this is where the cauldron, the chimney uh, for heating up the water, uh, and it was the laundry room. It, it was the only one that actually had a brick floor because of, you know, the water for the, the laundry uh, being done there. The rest of the floor was compacted earth with boards sort of loosely laid on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the furnace was all the way in the, uh, the other side next to the street, you know, in the, in the southwest corner. And he made note that Miss Borden went into the washroom, went over to the sink that was down there, uh, lingered there for a few moments, um, and then paused in front of the pile of bloody clothes. Now, this was the second trip. I got ahead of myself. The first trip, when she goes down with Alice Russell holding the lamp with a slop pail, um, they go back upstairs. Alice puts her nightgown on, and then as soon as uh, that happens, Lizzie returns to the basement without Alice this time. Right, right. So there are two There are two trips two to trips. the basement, in other words, the night of the murder. The first one, when Alice decides to tag on with her lantern, her uh, oil lamp, and then Lizzie takes the lamp and goes down by herself the second time and does something by the sink. And Hyde sees her and makes note that he sees the lantern. This time she goes down the front stairs with the... Uh, the oil lamp, I should say. It passes through the sitting room, through the kitchen. He sees the light through the window, and then he sees it appear all of a sudden in the basement. And she takes a look at the pile of bloody clothes and then goes back up to her room. So there's been a lot of conjecture. What was she doing the second time down mm -hmm. there that she couldn't have done the first time 
And the only difference was she had a witness the first time. Right, right. So, you know, it's an interesting side note. It might have been perfectly innocent. Maybe there's nothing behind it at all. Uh, I'm sure you know that uh, Lizzie was having her menstrual period, and she had a large uh, bucket of soaking cloths. And I had a Victorian grandmother who explained to me, you would cut up pieces of sheeting or cotton material, soft uh, mm-hmm. cheesecloth, something like that, and use for uh, feminine hygiene purposes. And Lizzie had finished that time of the month, which she described as, I had fleas. They called it having fleas. Mm. And it was highly embarrassing to discuss. It was in my day, and I'm not that old. You never mentioned it in front of uh, in mixed company. Mm -hmm. But she had to uh, explain why she had a a spot of blood on her petticoat. This would be later on. And the judge said, never mind about that. The doctor has explained the medical condition, which would explain, you know. So they skirted all around that. And by the way, they didn't ask Lizzie for the clothing she had on that day on the right. day of the murder. Yeah. yeah, and so there was a whole issue of a dress that Lizzie would burn on the day after the funerals, and this was witnessed by Alice Russell and her sister Emma. Lizzie thought she was alone in the kitchen. Um, Alice had gone out back to her house to get some things she needed. Emma was in a separate room, um, the sink room, doing breakfast dishes, and Lizzie was by the wood stove, so she had the kitchen to herself. The sink room was an entirely separate, closed-off room. Anybody in the sink room would not have been able to see the stove. And Lizzie took from the cupboard, which was next to the wood stove. This is on Sunday, which was the 7th of August. Okay. And she's been informed at this point that she is a suspect by that Sunday, correct? Uh, no, she okay. hadn't been told she was a spot suspect at that point. Okay. The police on the day of the funerals uh, did a very thorough search of the house. Okay. Yeah, we got away from we got away from that. It's so easy to go off on a tangent. I know. There's so many fascinating tangents you can go off on. Sure. And there's so many personalities in here. You know, uh, they did, as I say, kind of I call it a sort of a slapdash search on the day of the murder. You know, they were looking in the yard and the yard behind and running all around, and uh, Lizzie couldn't be disturbed for a thorough search. I think they looked in Bridget's room because nobody cared, you know, about an Irish maid, how she felt, and they were, you know, less than um, the bottom of the barrel, what they would think or feel. But uh, they came back Saturday to spare the feelings of the girls who were down at the cemetery, as was Uncle John, and did a thorough search. They opened Lizzie's piano. They had a um, mason open up a chimney in the basement. Um, some of the because it, he had put central heat in, uh, they never used the fireplaces. So they had the fireplaces that were boarded up opened, you know, to see if somehow something had been thrown in behind. Um, 
But getting back to the handleless hatchet, we, we went off on one of our tangents. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't until Monday. Uh, now, remember, the murders are Thursday. The thorough search done on Saturday during the funerals. Lizzie Burns' address on Sunday. I want to know, where was that dress on Saturday when they were doing yeah. the thorough search? Because it's a great big closet to the left of the wood stove. She pulled it, I think, off the second from the bottom shelf. It was a skirt and what they called a basque, which is another word for blouse, or they also called them waists. So it was made of the same cloth. And when you put it on, it had the appearance that it would be a dress because it was all the same color. But it was really a two-piece. It was a skirt and a matching top uh, that she ripped up. The story was later, well, I had it made in the spring, I think May, but the house was being painted. And once again, Lizzie is the one who painted and picked out the paint colors, not Abby. Right, right. Abby, Abby did not have any control, which pleased uh, Lizzie to no end. She'd mentioned it to uh, her friend Augusta Tripp. You know, that she actually had more say in the running of the household than Mrs. Borden did. I mean, this is a resentment of the usurper, you know, Abby Borden trying to take over as mother and wife and uh, mistress of the house. But actually, she and her sister Emma had a lot more sway. The only time they got nervous is when Mr. Borden put that house in Abby's name. I think that was 1887. And that made the girls very nervous. And once again... Uh, We've mentioned that Emma went to her father, and what you did for her people, you need to do for your own flesh and blood. And Andrew Borden had to give them an equal property to keep the peace in the family. Andrew Borden was a man in a house of unhappy women. Hmm. He was outnumbered and outgunned. Two miserable daughters, uh, a nervous, unhappy wife who had to cope with these two girls that didn't like her, and the Irish maid who was very fond of Mrs. Borden. I, I never got the impression she was particularly fond of Lizzie and Emma. You know, right, right. things that were said. And then you have the, the, the one man having to juggle all these women and keep everybody and keep the peace. At one point, Bridget was uh, wanted to leave, but she did like Mrs. Borden and was offered um, more money to stay. Right, right. But sh she certainly wasn't thrilled to be working there. Her work was very specific. She was only uh, really allowed in certain parts of the house, her own room, the downstairs and sweeping, doing the laundry and doing um, a great deal of the kitchen work. But she did not go on the second floor. Uh, Lizzie and Emma took care of their own rooms, as did Mrs. Borden. So, you know, uh, Bridget had some uh, limited jobs. Right, right. But now I, I, for, I forgot where we were before yeah, now, <laughs> we got to this now, point. I think I think Shelley that this this is a good place to pause. We've gotten to August seventh, uh, the day after the funeral. Lizzie's burning the dress. If I could possibly, because there's so there's so much good stuff here, and I don't want mm -hmm. to I don't want to deal too quickly with the inquest in the trial. So if if I could. Uh, ask to schedule you to deal with the inquest and the trial sort of separately, and so we can give that the time it deserves. 
And if we could just sort of leave this for now. Um, oh, sure. You, yeah. I, I think probably that's, I mean, this is not a small story. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there's so many offshoots, and we've only grazed the surface. I know, I know. And there's we're... so many more rabbit holes to crawl down. Uh, I do think we probably ought to um, mention that the handleless hatchet, we sort of got diverted again. It's, it's so much fun to get diverted yes. here. <laughs> and I'm easily let off course. Um it wasn't found, Officer Medley, and I believe it was Officer Edson, on Monday, uh, right after the dress was burned and after the big search was done on Saturday, on Monday, they decided to have a look around the basement again. And at that time, it was Medley who saw a hatchet lying on the top of a, it was all coated with dust. Mm-hmm. Remember, coal was stored down there, and uh, just regular dust of a metallic thing, uh, like an old dusty can of nails. If you leave it in your basement, you know, it gets that film coating on it. Uh, and he found this lying, pretty easily visible, and it had a, a little short piece of handle stuck in the eye, eye hole. There was like the eye eyelet in the in the metal part of the hatchet where the wooden piece slips in, and then you have shims and things, you know, to hold it in place. And it was broken off with maybe an inch and a half, two inches still in it. It looked like a fresh break, mm-hmm. and the hatchet head itself had some rusty color on it. So they did send that away. Right. Along with, you know, the stomach contents, the milk, the bread. A lot of uh, bits were sent off to Harvard Medical School, including hair, to see if there was some deposit of arsenic or some other um, poison. We we did skip over that uh, day before the murder where Lizzie said she never went out of the house until she went to see Alice. According to Eli Bentz, who... I think it was about 26-year-old assistant clerk at uh, D.L. Smith's Pharmacy, which is one street over and one block south of where Lizzie, that's at the corner of Columbia and South Main. Um, He maintains that she came in, Lizzie came in Wednesday somewhere, mm, I think it was about uh, between 11, 11.30. It was before the noon time and asked for 10 cents worth of prussic acid, uh, and he asked her what would she need that for. It was a deadly poison, and it required a prescription. There are uses for prussic acid, medical uses. Um, mostly it was like insecticide. I think in some cleaning agents it was used. Um she claims she had a set of seal skin furs, and it had um, there were there were moths in them, and she wanted to sprinkle this powder on the hem mm-hmm. to get rid of the moths. And when they questioned Lizzie, do you actually have uh, seal skin sacks? And she said, yes, they're up in the attic in muslin bags. And do they have moths? She said, no. 
I did not leave the house. This is her inquest, which is so important to read, mm -hmm. uh, word for word. Um, they don't have moths, and I don't even know where this pharmacy is, which is ridiculous because it's, as I say, one street over and one block down. And Lizzie was a notorious shopper on in that strip. You know, it's um, hard to believe she didn't know the pharmacy was right there on the corner. Um, Eli Bentz, I've done a lot of work on him, his family. He actually had a half-brother who was at one time on the Fall River Police Force, and he may have actually... Two people, if I could go back in time, I want to interview. <laughs> one is Alice Russell, right, and the other, and the other is Eli Bentz. I think they could, you know, tell me a lot. Eli Bentz felt compelled, maybe because his brother had been a policeman at one point, uh, to let the police know that Miss Borden had been at his pharmacy asking for prussic acid. Well, they did not find any prussic acid in the stomach contents or hair samples or any of that, but nor would they because Mr. Bentz would not sell uh, this person 10 cents worth of prussic acid. There were also two men in the pharmacy, Mr. Hart and Mr. Kilroy, who recognized her as Andrew Borden's daughter. Also, Eli Bentz was taken to the Borden home and was asked to look down the hallway from the screen door at the side door. And, and since you've been there, you know, if you stand on the stairs and look through that door, you see right in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Lizzie was in the kitchen, and Mr. Bentz listened for a moment, and he said, oh, that's, I recognize your voice. Well, you know, take a good look at her. And he identified her by voice and by sight as the woman right. who had been in his uh, pharmacy the day before. Mm. Wow. And the way they get that damaging mm -hmm. evidence is that, and you'll love this, it was too far remote in time. <laughs> and, no, you know, not that there was no prussic acid found, but, oh, no, this was too far remote in time. Wow. It was, what, um, t 24 hours yeah. before the yeah. first murder? I don't know how much closer they wanted it. Her inquest testimony, when she did give that, uh, because she had been told in her own parlor by none other than John Coughlin, the mayor, and Marshall Hilliard was standing there too, that she was a suspect. So when she, you know, had given her inquest testimony and she didn't take in um, uh, legal counsel with her, they couldn't use it. Right. Whether that was deliberate on the part of uh, her attorney, Andrew Jennings, later on Mr. Jennings would call the former governor to represent her at trial. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it was Mr. Jennings uh, who was Lizzie's counsel, and he didn't come with her to the inquest, so they couldn't use it. As far as the dress-burning incident, that was the third damaging bit um, that was ruled inadmissible because it's not a crime to burn an old dress covered with paint, and that was the way the family would, uh, you know, burn up things they didn't want. They right. just burn them up at the stove, and they called the house painter, Mr. Gruard, 
who testified, yes, she did that day get paint on that dress. Wow. And, you know, it's almost like, gee, it's almost like a, a, a real whitewash. And the clothing yeah. that she handed them, she gave them a navy blue silk bengaline dress, which doesn't match the description of what anybody described she had on the morning of the murder. It was a sort of dress she'd wear to church. It was not a print. And silk bengaline, you would not be wearing that as a house dress in the morning in your home unless you were going to go out. The stockings, she admitted she'd already washed them out and she'd worn the shoes. Uh, the petticoat had a little bit of blood on the inside and the back, which was explained by her uh, condition and the time of the month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so once again, the evidence gathering was abominable. Securing the crime scene was non-existent. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. And, 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 and getting the three most damaging things, the dress burning, her inquest testimony, and the prussic acid testimony of Eli Benz, thrown out yeah. at the trial, yeah. plus having the best uh, lawyer money could buy, yep. a jury predisposed to finding you innocent, you know, yeah, it, it, was yeah. a it was a slam dunk for old Lizzie. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. And, uh, mm. Shelley, I want to thank you for uh, sharing, I mean, like you said, just a fraction of what we could talk about. And I hope that I can get you on again to talk uh, uh, specifically about the inquest and the trial because it's just as fascinating as the murder itself is. Um and, uh, you know, we can give that the time it deserves uh, because we've talked for two hours. And as you said, we barely scratched the surface. So has it been two hours? It yes. felt like 10 minutes. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> so. So, again, I want I want to thank yeah. you so much, Shelley. Uh, we'll talk again uh, and and we'll, uh, you know, again, I, and I would recommend uh, checking out Shelley's uh, website, uh, Warps and Wefts, uh, which is a really, really cool um, website with a lot of great articles and your Facebook page, which is goes by the same name and has a lot of uh, really informative videos. Yes, we have a YouTube channel too. Yes, if that's you, right. Uh, would like to actually see what some of these places look at uh, look like today. Uh, I would recommend a book by Kara Robertson that came out last yes, year yes. Called, called "The Trial of Lizzie Borden," and she is a crackerjack lawyer, so she approaches this with an educated eye. Um, and I've learned a lot from uh, Kara and reading this book. That's a, a good thing to start with. Also, the preliminary you can get um, online as well as the inquest. And Amazon carries all three volumes of the trial transcript. So that's some homework. Yes. And maybe soon we'll talk again about this. Yes, uh, Shelley, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern podcast, and thank you to Shelley Deedstick. Please check out her website, Lizzie Borden Warps and Wefts, her Facebook page, and YouTube channel. 
I'd also like to thank Bill Tony for the music in this podcast. You can follow the History Tavern podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Facebook, and Twitter. <laughs>